I know that we said that the last episode was the end of the year, but it's Christmas and it's time for a Christmas opinion. Last year we watched lesbian Christmas movie The Happiest Season, and since then there's been a spate of gay Christmas films that have popped up on Netflix and other streaming platforms, and originally I was going to look at them and maybe do a little comparison, but then what I actually ended up doing was watching Love Actually which is something that I always think will be a bit of harmless fun, but actually just ends up kicking me in the teeth every time. I'm definitely not the first person to level criticism at it, but boy, what a deeply, deeply strange film. And it's set at Christmas, which means it's the perfect topic for a weird holiday bonus episode. (laughs) I'm Alex, this is Pop Culture Boner, the podcast edition, and today I'm thinking about Love Actually. Pop Culture Boner I'm not sure when Love Actually became considered a Christmas classic. It's not really a Christmas movie in the Hollywood sense. Despite being set at Christmas and featuring a full rendition of Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You, you don't get any of the typical, the true meaning of Christmas messaging that you get from a lot of American Christmas films. Uh, It's more of a backdrop and not the central plot point. I suspect its success in the holiday movie arena might have something to do with its pedigree. It has an incredible ensemble cast, including well-established names like Colin Firth, Hugh Grant, Emma Thompson, Alan Rickman, and actors who, at the time, in 2003, were on the brink of striking it big. Like Kira Knightley, who did Pirates of the Caribbean in the same year, Andrew Lincoln, who would go on to star in The Walking Dead, and January Jones' pre-Mad Men Betty Draper days. It was also written and directed by Richard Curtis, who's responsible for classics like Four Weddings and a Funeral, Notting Hill, and Bridget Jones's Diary. So objectively, it has all of the makings of something that should be pretty good. And look, it's not the worst movie ever made. It's watchable, which is likely why it's so popular, but there's something that's just like a bit off about it. (laughs) The reviews kind of speak to that as well. Um, They're mixed to the point where critics either found it like entirely pleasant to watch or excessively jarring. Um, Here's a little quote from the BBC, for example, who called it a vibrant romantic comedy, warm, bittersweet and hilarious. This is lovely, actually. Prepare to be smitten. In contrast, The Atlantic called it more like a record label's greatest hits compilation or a very special sitcom clip reel show than an actual movie. The film's governing idea of love is both shallow and dishonest, and its sweet, chipper demeanour masks a sour cynicism about human emotion that is all the more sleazy for remaining unacknowledged. It has the calloused, leering soul of an early 60s Rat Pack comedy, but without the suave, seductive bravado. So, in this very special Christmas bonus episode, I'm going to walk through some of Love Actually's weirdest bits. I don't know if I can offer any particular kind of insight here, uh, or whether it's just going to be one of those episodes where I lightly scream for a little bit, but let's find out, shall we? Here's a thing that you probably don't remember about Love Actually. It opens with a monologue that is ostensibly about love, but also bizarrely, about 9-11. 
The film opens with a slow pan over the arrivals gate at an airport and a characteristically sheepish voiceover from Hugh Grant, who plays a lovelorn British Prime Minister. And he says, Whenever I get gloomy with the state of the world, I think about the arrivals gate at Heathrow Airport. General opinion starting to make out that we live in a world of hatred and greed. But I don't see that. Seems to me that love is everywhere. When the planes hit the Twin Towers, as far as I know, none of the phone calls from the people on board were messages of hate or revenge. They were all messages of love. Look, I get the sentiment. <laughs> in our darkest moments, we turn to love. All you need is love. Love conquers all, etc., etc., yada, yada, yada. I also don't think I'm wrong about the hard left turn that little paragraph takes right at the end there. It's a nice little romantic introduction with slow motion shots of people finally reuniting with loved ones. And you think, wow, it's true. Maybe love is all around us. Maybe I am wrong about how much I hate being at airports. And actually, it's nice when families reunite. And then BAM! Would you like to recall the deadliest terrorist attack in human history that we were all forced to watch unfurl? on the international 24-hour news cycle? Not only that, do you want to specifically recall the final moments of fear that those people on the hijacked plane felt right when they knew their fate was sealed and there wasn't anything else to do except call the people that mattered most to them and impart one final I love you? And would you like all of that juxtaposed with images of people who actually successfully make it home in airborne tin cans? No? You don't want that? Too fucking bad! That's the structural basis for this film, baby! That's the foundation stone that we're getting Hugh Grant to lay right here. (laughs) There's a conspiracy theory happy part of my brain that's a little bit like, maybe part of this film was funded by airlines and airports to try and revitalize how we all felt about being in them two years on from 9-11. Like, seeing people love each other in the seventh circle of hell that is Heathrow Airport would somehow make us look past the fact that in order to make it through a terminal, we now have to essentially get naked and consent to a human rights violation, particularly if you're a person of colour. But realistically, I know that writer and director Richard Curtis has actually always been a little bit like this. One of the things that is excessively jarring about Love Actually is the way that it jumps between really light performances and things that are a real punch to the gut. If you haven't watched it for whatever reason, the whole setup is that there's like eight different very slightly interconnected plots happening. One of them is a charming little interlude about how two nude body doubles who stand in for celebrity sex scenes slowly fall in love. Another is a very silly plot about how much easier it is for an Englishman to pick up a woman in America because of his accent. And then one of them, for some reason, is about Emma Thompson finding a necklace her husband has bought for Christmas and then finding that the box she actually ends up opening on Christmas Eve is a Joni Mitchell CD. And she realizes he's bought the necklace for a sexually forward woman at the office. And she silently sobs while Joni Mitchell plays in the background. And then she pulls herself together so that she can take the family to the nativity play. And later, when they talk about it, all she can bring herself to say is, you've made a fool out of me and you've made the life that I lead foolish too. 
I can't act, so I'm doing a terrible job of describing how jarring this is, but it happens after a Hugh Grant dance sequence to Jump For My Love and a character named Colin Frissell singing And I've Got a Massive Knob. So we're beaning along, having very slightly recovered from the bizarre 9-11-based opening, and then we get sucker-punched by the full force of her beautifully subtle and heartbreaking Emma Thompson performance, while Joni Mitchell's Both Sides Now plays in the background. Made all the worse by the fact that we all know that poor Emma is channeling her divorce from Kenneth Branagh into this exceptionally stoic performance, and then suddenly you're sobbing in the middle of the film. Lots of Curtis's films feature really similarly disjointed moments of incredible sadness, but at least with those, they feel kind of contextually appropriate. Four Weddings and a Funeral has the decency to flag that there'll be a funeral in the title. (laughs) Even though, like, realistically, nothing can really prepare you for John Hanna reciting Auden's Stop the Clocks, a poem which makes me cry without fail on my best day, let alone at the funeral of John Hanna's unacknowledged older male lover. But it doesn't ruin the overall tone of the film. All the appearances at the weddings have other unexpectedly sad overtures which lay the groundwork for an eventual funeral. Love actually peppers those moments of exquisite heartbreak amongst standard rom-com confectionery, which means that you careen between smiling and having a nice time and dealing with the aftermath of a romantic failure so spectacular and relatable that you're left sniffling on the couch. It's a nightmare. How some people willingly choose to make this their regular Christmas viewing is a little bit beyond me, to be honest. I think if I really tried, I could probably come up with some actual, like, intelligent criticism of Love, actually. I've read a few reviews that have pointed out its failings as a rom-com. The characters are pretty two-dimensional. They're never expanded on fully enough to make the romantic bit of the romantic comedy feel anything other than shallow. No one slowly gets to know each other. They barely talk. Uh, Instead, the overwhelming power of their physical attraction to each other and the apparent intrinsic romance of Christmas time is enough to drive them together, which promotes a very silly and shallow version of love, especially coupled with the overwhelming fat phobia of the film which I kind of forgot about and then I rewatched and was like, oh, okay. But honestly, having rewatched it recently, I think its worst crimes as a film are actually just its lack of cohesive tone. I don't need the whiplash of hysterically sobbing over something that's not really a good enough piece of art to warrant it. Well, I mean, that's the big crime, but also the 9-11 thing, you know? There's no coming back from that. <laughs> Uh, Well, that is my short and sweet Christmas bonus for you all. Uh, To those of you who celebrate, Merry Christmas! Um, To those of you who don't celebrate, uh, I hope that you're able to have some time off and that the excessive use of Christmas carols in retail spaces doesn't drive you to the brink. Uh, Make sure you subscribe to Pop Culture Boner wherever you like your podcasts. You can follow us at Pop Culture Boner on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube if that's your thing. Stay safe, and we'll see you in the pub in the new year. Peace!